Hello, and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine, and I'm joined now by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hi, Joe. Hello. Uh, Seb and I were joined today by Rob Tanner, who is the Leicester City correspondent for The Athletic. Mm, a very knowledgeable man about all things Leicester City. Seb, what did we talk about in bullet points, please? Oh, all kinds. Um, we did uh, the commercial department, um, the appointment of a new commercial director. We did plans for stadium expansion, new training ground. Did a little bit on Brendan Rodgers and the kind of the softening of his personality, should we call it? Um, yeah, it's super interesting. Rob was great. Yeah, really. cool guy. Um, I particularly enjoyed the bit about the uh, golf course. Yeah, 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 that was a good bit actually. Yeah, <laughs> don't know why it took me so long to think of the words golf course, but uh, it did. Anyway, there's a bit about a golf course, and there's a lot of stuff about Leicester City. Um, I, personally, I think they're an incredibly well-run club. They're very exciting for me to watch. Uh, I and I know I make this analogy every other episode and have done for uh, I don't know ten years, but they remind me of that Everton team from the mid two thousands. Don't do that again. Do you Not remember that one? But oh, no, no, just honestly, this, though, it's Joe, true. It's true. <laughs> Though, no, the one, the one that it. has all of the good play had a lot of good players just outside of the top four, but it managed to maintain for uh, n- numerous years uh, a squad and a first team of excellent players. I feel that Leicester are the 2020 version of of that Everton team. You, you, you know the problem with this is is that you make this point on every podcast, and then online when the podcast comes out, you backtrack on Twitter or something. It's like watching someone's breakdown. It's just. I mean, it's it's terrible podcasting. Uh, listen, you should have just left me to make it because it's a very good point. It's a very good point. Anyway, I'd say that most teams can be compared to that Everton team. Um, but anyway, this is Leicester City and uh, we will leave you now in the... No, we won't. Not yet. Because first I have to plug you something. And the thing I'm going to plug you is an ex... Oh, it's a good thing. It's an excellent thing. Guess what it's called, Seb? Is it uh, The Athletic? Ding, ding, ding. There it is. That was actually more more sinister than the boxing ring thing. It's The Athletic. Hey, if you visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, you can get an incredible offer, which includes a free trial uh, to The Athletic, where you can find um, just the highest standard and quality of uh, sports writing and journalism available online, I would say. Specific interest, of course, today to the work of Rob Tanner, today's guest who writes all about Leicester City um, and whose coverage I particularly enjoy. So if you like TIFO and you want to support us, the best way to do that is to uh, yeah accept one of those offers. So do visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Um, enjoy Rob's work. Enjoy helping us and enjoy all of your future time reading The Athletic. Anyway, uh, with no more further ado than has already done, uh, we leave you in the capable hands of Rob Atana. So, the club appointed a new commercial director in late uh, 2019, Dan Barnett. He came from a company called US Ski and Snowboard in Utah. Very exciting. Uh, what changes has he brought with him, Rob? And, and more broadly, what are the club's commercial challenges heading forward? Well, the challenge is always to try and uh, produce enough revenue streams that can um, allow them then to challenge the, the big six. If the plan really is to, um, to be a contender, and to break up that monopoly at the top of the Premier League, then obviously they're going to need to invest in the club. But I think there's a reality around Leicester City about where they are in that aspect of it. Yes, they're owned by uh, King Power, massive international company, billionaires. Um, but still, 
the money they can spend, the model of the club is nowhere near uh, the clubs that they're aspiring to challenge on a consistent basis at the moment. So they're always trying to explore new um, revenue streams, try and uh, develop and build the business. It's come a long, long way in a short space of time. I mean, I remember 2002, they went into administration and nearly ceased to exist. Um, so it's been uh, a, l- a long process to get back now. And obviously a big moment was when King Power came in and uh, invested in the cl- the club so much and, and wrote off £103 million worth of of loans. They converted it into equity, so they basically just wrote that off. Um, so, yes, it's going to be... They're trying now just to try and explore more avenues for uh, revenue because I think what we have learned about the coronavirus situation is that football in England is so reliant on television money at the moment um, I don't think it's viable to continue in that aspect because, uh, as we've seen now, when the, with the rebates that might be coming back and uh, stuff like that, it's uh, the Premier League is going to be a different place. And um, if you can generate income from uh, lots of different areas, then that'll stand you in good stead. Rob, I was having a look at, um, at the recent financial results that were released, and um, it shows a, a rise in turnover from 158 million to 178 million. And roughly speaking, that, that kind of fits a trend of a 20% increase. Um, every season since promotion, with the exception of the um, the championship season and the Champions League revenue that followed, what is the um, how how what what has been behind that performance? I saw also that commercial revenue has um, has doubled from fourteen point two million to twenty nine point nine in two thousand nineteen. I mean, Dan Barnett's coming in; he's, he's obviously inheriting a, a pretty healthy department. Well, yeah, and I think a lot of the credit has to go to um, Susan Whelan, the chief executive at the club. Um, she is a, a prolific businesswoman. She's been with King Power for a long time of her career. Um, she came over and she was juggling the two roles between working for King Power. And I think she still might be uh, at the moment, but she's very hands-on and very influential at uh, Leicester City. And, and part of her brief was to remodel and reshape the way Leicester City went about its uh, income, uh, its revenue. And um, I think she's uh, very uh, astute, very well-respected within the Premier League businesswoman that uh, has really got a, a model, developed a model that uh, the club are moving forward. And even now they're um, they're looking at different projects um, around the city in terms of what they're going to do with the stadium expansion. We've got the training ground, which hopefully will be complete for when uh, the, the next season, whenever this might be, when the next season uh, kicks off. I think she deserves a, a lot of credit on that. I'm going to come back to the, the training ground because I want to ask you about that as well. But um, I just want to pick up on something you mentioned, you know, regarding the, the commercial aspects of the club, you sort of suggest, well, if the idea is to compete with the, 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 the top six, then Leicester are a long way away. Now, I know that everyone listening will sort of know that, broadly speaking, but in terms of the finer details, do you think you'd be able to walk us through ex- exactly what that, uh, why that there, there is that gap? I mean, obviously, it's partly from the commercial aspect, right? But also, um, the King Power Stadium is smaller, so match day income is going to be less. I, is it that that we're talking about, Rob? I think it's more the global impact. Um, I mean, the brands of Man United and Liverpool globally are huge. And I, I witnessed this myself when we had um, a pre-season tournament in Hong Kong and I went over and uh, West Bromwich Albion, Stoke, no, West Bromwich Albion, Crystal Palace and Liverpool were also involved in the in the tournament. And everywhere you went, all the fans in the crowd, they loved it, the Premier League, and but they were all there for Liverpool. That is the far, the great reach of Liverpool, Man United. They're all 
uh, huge brands. And I think that is the biggest difference between Leicester is still a brand that's very much still growing uh, globally. So there's all those revenue they can get uh, from overseas. Um, you would think being owned by Ties and the um, and King Power Group that um, there would also be revenue for them in uh, other markets. And I think there is. They are developing that. Um, I know there's a massive shop in uh, Duty Free in Bangkok Airport which sells Leicester City merchandise and things like that. But um, I think with uh, what they're trying to do now, and, and it's going to take a long time for them to be there, is, is to try and compete on broader um, revenue streams, um, more international revenue streams as well. And how, I mean, you've mentioned a couple of examples there, but just generally speaking, how would a club go about doing that? And I, I know if, if you had the honest answer to that, you'd be you'd be in charge of Leicester <laughs> City. But, yeah. uh, you know, just w- within the confines that we have uh, and respecting the fact that Leicester City are unlikely to, to catch up to, to Manchester United and or Liverpool in terms of their global commercial growth. But what are some of the things that, that the club have attempted to do to expand that, that, uh, that fandom overseas? Well, they're trying now, actually, to... Um well it's like a chicken and egg situation you know what comes first you've got to have be successful on the pitch you've got to capture the imagination of football fans around the world and they did that in 2016 with that incredible title victory now they're trying to build on that I know that they've been using some of the legends like Jerry Taggart and Matt Elliott and they've been going out to America a lot they can see a market there that they can try and tap into and try and develop and I mean I did a piece for the Athletic recently talking to all the various um, Leicester City uh, fan clubs around America which there are numerous um, they seem to adopt that uh, them as uh, their team because of, they love the underdog story um, but so what they're trying to do now and they're doing it in, in Australia and other places as well is just trying to get out and get the message out there that Leicester City are a club that is aspiring to be uh, up there challenging with the elite of English football and if they can develop that and grow um, the interest in Leicester City uh, internationally then obviously then that will create opportunities then to develop revenue streams as well. Rob, I was having a look at the concepts um, for the new training ground in Seagrave. Um, and it looks amazing. I'm mean, talking of elite football. It just looks like it looks absolutely state of the art. Um, I think um, I think I'm right in saying that the original um, move in date was June 2020. Um, has that been affected? I mean, I imagine that it has been affected by the coronavirus. Um, what's the what's the latest in that situation? Oh, it's still developing. It's still going. It's still going on. Um, the construction. Oh, well, so work, you've got a full, um, full, full staff on site there at the moment. They've got a, a staff on there. I think obviously okay. the coronavirus situation, the social distancing, has caused a few issues there. But um, they're still confident that it will get done. It probably won't be at the original deadline that they wanted. They wanted to be in there for pre-season uh, in July. Um, but um, certainly, they're still hopeful that when the next season starts, whether that be September, or October. They'll be in there. I mean, it's, if you see the latest images, it really is taking shape now. And um, John Ledwidge, the, the head groundsman, and his staff have been down there working on the pitches, but not just the pitches. There's a nine-hole golf course there as well <laughs> for the uh, players and the staff to to uh, make use of as well. And they've been working on those. They've become greenkeepers as well. So, um, yeah, the, the work is still very much ongoing. And, um, uh, yeah, there will be a slight delay, but um, that, I think they're still very confident they'll be in their new home. Because this is the important thing. And this is another thing that um, points out the, um, the ambition of the football club. Because majority of the work the players do their, their their working environment is down the training ground it's not on the stadium on a Saturday afternoon it's down that stadium and if you've got a, a training ground which is state of the art uh, it will help them bring in the sort of players they want and need 
if they're going to be pursuing um, the big six on a consistent basis. So it is a, a really important project for them. It's going to cost over £100 million now, and um, that's a, a sizable investment. Uh, and then they're going to look at um, developing the uh, the east end of King Power Stadium and the land behind it as well. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of projects going on at the moment that require a lot of money. Who's the keenest golfer amongst the players, Rob? <laughs> well, this is the thing. So I remember in the 80s and 90s, the, the players all were out golfing, but mm. football now, the professional of it is so... They're not allowed to walk around for four <laughs> hours anymore. They have to sit down and lie down. I can remember talking to Jack Hobbs, the former centre-back, about his um, his passion for, for snooker. And I said, oh, yeah, you've got to practice a lot of snooker. And I said, do you, do, you, do you get time? And he said, I'm not allowed to stand up for more than an hour. Said so I can only practice an hour at a time. Then I have to go and sit down because that's got to be fresh for Saturday. So yeah, I can't see. Perhaps nine holes is a good compromise, but I can't see the guys going out for four hours dragging their clubs around. I don't think the sports scientists were uh, beamed for that. <laughs> no, right. Well, I guess you know on the, on the point of sitting down. Let's talk about the stadium. Uh, they're presumably they're adding seats. I mean, you mentioned it there. Uh, I know that they've said the new capacity is supposedly going to be somewhere in the in the forty thousands. Um, but uh, where's the extra? capacity? capacity coming from i mean are they going to be knocking the east stand down and rebuilding or extra tiers or do you have any um, information about that and and uh, also part of the process and how long the timeline is yeah um very similar to the um development at anfield um they're going to build over from the back over the existing stand to add roughly a ten thousand more seats um for the stadium this has been something that's been discussed around leicester city for a number of years and i think initially um, the club's ownership uh, and Kung Fu Chai wanted some sort of um, assurance that if they added that much, then they, that the fans would come, that they would be able to fill them. Because the last thing they want is empty seats in the ground because they love the atmosphere of home games at King Power Stadium because it is a, a great atmosphere at the games. Um, so they didn't want to water that down by expanding the stadium and then the fans not coming. But I think they've been in a, um, assured now that uh, supporters would come and they would uh, come in the numbers as well. So they're, they're pressing ahead with that. those plans for that. Um, they purchased land uh, from behind the east stand, the area of around where the helicopter crashed, around that area, where there's a permanent mor- memorial now to, to Kumbachai. It's quite a sizable area of land. And um, so what they're planning to do when they develop it is incorporate within the, the structures uh, things like um, a club museum. Um, there's going to be a statue uh, of Kumvichai on the other side of the ground as well, but um, there's the memorial to Kumvichai in there as well. Um, but then they're going to have a fan park. It looks like it's going to be a fan park in that area as well around there, so the fans can come down and make more of an occasion of a home game. They can come down a few hours before, enjoy a bit of music, food, drink, whatever, um, in the fan park area, and then filter into the into the stadium for um for, for match day so i think the priority has been the training ground so i think once the training ground's finished we could start looking at um developments of that that part of the plan they still haven't they're still in the very much in the planning stage of the stadium expansion but i'm told it will go ahead at some stage so perhaps in the part of next season we'll probably hear a little bit more once they're up and running again with the um with the seagrave project can I just um just take a look back a little bit for the sake of some clarity? Um, after um after Kumbhashai's passing, um, was there any um long term effect on the structure of the club, the hierarchy within it, or did did things carry on as normal just with um his son in his place? 
Yes, very much so. They did. Um, again, Susan Whelan uh, stepped up with all her staff. Um, she was fantastic during that dark dark period, and she steadied the ship because obviously, you know, uh, he's just lost his father, um, Rich, uh, Richard Garn, and so Top Aya Watt, his um, his youngest son, who's being groomed to be a successor, had to be given time to deal with that himself, and yeah. and then eventually um, yeah, he came in and he. he he was probably more hands-on around the club anyway than Kumvishai. Kumvishai is a very much a great leader figurehead, but he, his big concern was obviously the King Power Empire back in Thailand. Um, so we did used to see um, Top more than, than Vichai around anyway, but um, now Vichai's stepped up uh, into the chairmanship of the club and it's been seamless in many ways. All the projects that, um, that Kumvichai talked about, like the, the training ground, like the stadium, uh, they just carried on uh, as normal, and there's there's a more there's more uh, drive, there's more clarity about how they go about these projects now because they're determined to fulfil the legacy and the vision of Kung Fu Chai for him. And um, I know Top is very much at the forefront of that. Um, just a strange question. I just because I I've never encountered a situation like this. But what was the club like for you to cover? Um, in the period after that, I hope I hope that doesn't sound too maudlin and morbid. I, I just um, no, it's understandable. I understand it would have changed your job, wouldn't it? I mean, just in the te- in the way that you carried out and, and the way you questioned players and staff members, and I, I just I can't relate to it. The best way for me to describe it is um, when they won the title, two thousand sixteen. I saw the whole city rejoice, and eyes of the world were on the club. Uh, we had TV crews coming in all the time and radio crews ringing us up and it, for, for little bits and bobs because they didn't know much about Leicester. But the whole of the community, it's a very diverse community in Leicester, but they're all united behind the football club. And, you know, you'd, we went down to the stadium after the, on the day they lifted the trophy and there was, you know, a Bangra band playing outside and there was like loads of fans singing and dancing with them. And it, it was a great uh, way of unifying the whole city. When with us come for Chai after the helicopter crash, um, we saw the community come together again in a very, very different way. Um, where there was champagne corks and what have you outside the stadium, people were laying shirts and scarves, and it was just in stark contrast to the scenes that we had witnessed in 2016. And some of the fans that I know, and certainly some of the members of staff that I've known for a long time at the at the club, who um, that I'd, I'd come to know over the, the years and, and they knew Vichai, um, to see them grieving the way they did. I mean, I, I know um, Jim Donnelly is the um, supporter liaison officer. He went viral in 2015-16 with his uh, over-enthusiastic celebration of a goal against Aston Villa. Which, <laughs> oh, that guy. Twitter. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. You mean, yeah. <laughs> well, I saw him outside the... Uh, outside the stadium one day when I went down to have a look at the memorials and all the shirts and the flowers and the messages and stuff like that and um, he was in tears it, it just it, emotionally it was just too much it was um, it was a real shock to the system and, and, and those and those moments as a journalist you have to show respect um, to everybody involved the football doesn't really matter that much now it's um, it, it's the community that you serve for your local newspaper or whatever that you've um, now got to show respect to as well. So it did change the way I worked a, a little bit, but it was just another incredible experience in terms of the 10 years I've been covering Leicester City because, you know, just when you think you've seen it all, something else happens.
You know, Rob, Seb and I are pretty lucky in that we get to speak to uh, a, a correspondent from The Athletic every week to talk about their club. And obviously you guys are insanely knowledgeable um, and uh, very entertaining. Um, but we do get to hear a lot about the way that, that football clubs are run. Um, we get to hear about the structures and the people involved. And for the most part, that's um, that's a pretty sort of successful operation. You know, I think being able to hear more about the behind the scenes stuff certainly has given me um, more of an understanding and appreciation of the hard work and the organisation that that has to go into um, running a football club. At the same time, there are clubs that are better run than others. And it strikes me from what I've read about Leicester, from listening to, to you talk and reading your work about Leicester, and even from just watching Leicester at the weekend, that they're an incredibly well-run club. Is, is is that fair to say, do you think, in comparison to other teams in the Premier League? Or am I a bit uh, dewy-eyed? No, I, I totally agree with that. They are an incredibly well-run football club. What they do do very well, and, I, and this has come from the very top, is tap into the community. They do a hell of a lot of work around the community in terms of fundraising charities. I mean, Alan Birch on the club ambassador has been doing his end of season run around the pitch to raise money for charities for 40 years. But it's only since um, King Power came in that um, those fundraising efforts have have really started to flourish. And uh, they do a lot of work with local charities, um, hospitals. So and they because obviously Leicester fans will all be affected by these uh, organisations, you know, we all use hospitals. We all, um, if you might have uh, somebody who's got learning difficulties, who's going to benefit from some some facility that um, Comfort Chai personally um, given money to, and they've done that very very well. But in terms of running of the football club, um, they are very astute uh, business people. Um, as I, and again, I mentioned Susan Whelan um, as the real driving force for that. They don't overspend. It's they don't risk the club um, they respect the club's tradition and heritage as well which is a big thing I and mean, if you walk around the corridors of the west stand of um, King Power Stadium it's basically a museum so they remember all the history in the past and, and, and we have seen um, many many times um, overseas foreign ownerships that come in and they haven't respected that heritage and that history quite so much I mean, I'm thinking Cardiff City when they changed from blue to red for a start off I mean that um, that didn't go down very very well with them so and uh, personally, I come from Birmingham area, so I've seen uh, some of the ownerships over there and how dreadfully they've gone. Um, so I always say to the Leicester fans, it's like winning the lottery when you've got these owners <laughs> um, yeah. because they're just so level-headed um, and rational about how they go about things. Um, and they realise they've got something special within the Leicester sh- uh, community in the football club. It is a focal of the football club of the uh, of the whole of Leicestershire and... Um, and they've been very good in terms of protecting that and uh, that sort of has earned them a lot of brownie points as well with the supporters. Alex, Leicester have uh, tactically reinvented themselves and I think, you know, you will have heard us uh, listeners talking about this uh, in the throughout the rest of the podcast as well. But one of the things I'm so fascinated with when it comes to Leicester is the fact that, okay, they won in 2016, which was an extraordinary uh, and un-sort of uh, paralleled event. Um, and I think many people expected them to, to, to fall away again. And, and for Leicester to be in the position that they are uh, this season, even though it's during a break, um, and for Leicester to have been so successful with that transition from the Ranieri-type football eventually finding the Rodgers-type football or, or certainly moving their way towards that position. 
I mean, from an outsider's perspective, it seems like they've done an astonishing job. Is that is that what you see, Alex? Yeah, I think I think what's really interesting is that they have, in some ways, returned to aspects of what they did successfully under Ranieri. So, what Rogers has managed to do is inject real dynamism, particularly in transition going forwards, while at the same time having that you know, passing slow style of keeping possession at the back, which Rogers is obviously known for from his time at, at Swansea particularly. The reason I think Leicester are doing particularly well is that they've managed to meld what they want to do stylistically with the acquisitions of certain players. So obviously in in players like James Madison and Harvey Barnes, they've they've got kind of young, dynamic, quick players. Vardy's extremely fast as well. So there's there was already a basis in that squad for uh, playing very vertical football. By vertical, what we mean is the ability to transition quickly from the back to the front. But they've also recruited smartly. So with people like uh, Dennis Pratt, Yuri Tillemans, uh, Ayotso Perez, they, they've augmented the squad with further of those sorts of players who are able to, to play in a particular kind of way. They've got two extremely good fullbacks, arguably the best fullback pairing uh, after Liverpool in Ben Chilwell and Ricardo Pereira. That gives them width on the outside. Then they've got these players who are very, very good at sort of quick one-touch football, receiving the ball, turning, playing it forwards very vertically. Um, and so, you know, the the squad is geared up to what they want to do, but they've augmented that with acquisitions and they've played to their strengths in terms of Rodgers having this game plan of, you know, how can we get the ball forwards quickly? It's kind of like a, a, a reaction to Claude Puel's very sort of horizontal, quite laboured style, which we saw when he was at Southampton as well. You know, defence first, keep the ball, shift it around, probe for an opening. And, and that that wasn't playing particularly to Vardy's strengths. Um, and, and so Rodgers has kind of come in, reinvented the wheel slightly by going back to some of what Ranieri did so well, but also with with this crop of young players who can add a, a greater degree of control through the middle when they're doing it. Can you give me a, a few of the, the central tenants then of a Rodgers-type team? Are we seeing that with Leicester now? Has Rodgers adapted what he wants to do to work with this team, or are we seeing his imprint as we saw it at Celtic and, and even before that at Liverpool? I think there's a degree to which it's a bit of both. I, I mean, Rodgers, Rodgers definitely likes possession, um, he likes his teams to work the ball forwards relatively slowly to begin with. And we can see in terms, for example, of, of looking at Kasper Schmeichel's passing numbers that, you know, as, as a goalkeeper, Schmeichel has really had to adapt working under Rodgers. Um, he's playing shorter passes much, much more. He's linking with the defence much, much more rather than just lumping it forwards and, and trying to set Vardy free into space. So there is still that that measure of control. I think what Rodgers has done, though, is he's looked at, particularly in the central midfield area, which is really the the absolutely crucial area for Leicester. So they've got Wilfred Ndidi as their first choice and, and Hamza Chowdhury as kind of their backup guy as this, this screening midfielder who's able to cover a huge amount of ground and do a lot of defensive work. Ahead of them, what Rodgers likes to do is play James Madison and, and Yuri Tielemans. Now, both of these players are... They're slightly different. Madison is, is a more effective ball carrier. Tillemans is a more dynamic passer. But both of them are very, very good at receiving the ball, 
either kind of laterally into them and then immediately releasing it or, or taking a pass when their back is to the opposition goal, turning and then releasing it forwards. And this allows Leicester to, to play with a greater degree of verticality. So I think sometimes people have characterised Brendan Rodgers before, probably slightly unfairly if you look at what he did with Liverpool, but as as playing a kind of a tiki-taka pos, positional play style. And while there's still that degree of security and possession towards the back of the pitch, as Leicester move forwards, they become a really dynamic almost a counter-attacking team, um, but they don't necessarily have to do it on the counter. This can be a sort of slow release and then a sudden pouring forwards. And because they've got players like Harvey Barnes or Mark Albrighton or Damari Gray, who are very, very quick on the outside, Perez, who's a very capable ball carrier and a very kind of astute, intelligent, heads-up sort of footballer, and then obviously Vardy at the front of that, Leicester can attack with a degree of pace which really probably only Liverpool can match. And is the idea of that then, the pace and the verticality, is the idea just to catch the opposition out, to tr- to try and get them on the back foot by moving the ball forward so, so quickly and maybe unexpectedly? I, I think that's partly it, yes. I mean, what, what you have is, is uh, particularly with that front three, you've got players who are... Very mobile. So Vardy, generally speaking, will will play on on the last shoulder of of the the opposition defence. But he is good at at dropping in and linking up play. But the wider players are very, very astute at cutting inside and finding space in between the lines. So when you've got players who can transition the ball very, very quickly and find these penetrative passes through the opposition lines, then you're you're able to to move the ball very quickly up the pitch sometimes we're talking like two or three passes i mean it can be it's it's so it's not necessarily this idea that that Leicester are kind of hanging on to possession in in the same way that maybe Brendan Rodgers Swansea did they seem to know almost instinctively when it's an opportunity to to pass through the lines directly in that way and, and when it's not of course, the other thing that they can do is because they have these wide players that tuck inside and are capable of producing really nice kind of quick, incisive passing movements between them, that also allows the fullbacks to push up uh, and and give lots of natural width that way. And in Pereira and Chilwell, they've got two exceptional fullbacks who are very, very good defensively, yes, but are also very good pushing forwards, capable of creating from crosses. So Leicester have a... a, a quite a natural plan B where they'll pour forwards work the ball into those attacking areas quickly if that doesn't work then there's an opportunity to recycle the ball get it out into the wide areas and look for a cross by which time they already have three or four players in the box because the the opposite side of wide player is tucked inside Vardy's there and at least one of the attacking midfielders is pushed up too so there's there's a kind of a natural plan B for them and this can occur in in the same phase of play quite easily. You know, they'll 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 attack with the verticality that breaks down, and so they go wide, and they've got these fullbacks there waiting to get the ball into the box. The team seems to me to be very um, finely tuned, is maybe the way to put it. And I wonder, as I do with teams like this, obviously this is the first sort of real bout of success Leicester have had since they won the title four four years ago. Um, you know, their their most successful league position certainly you know looking to finish since 
And in 2016, or just afterwards, of course, the team was to a certain extent picked apart. Mares uh, left after a year. Kante left uh, at the time. Um, and, you know, the central defensive partnership is, is, is no longer there. So this team is a fairly new one. It's also fairly young, with the exception of Vardy. My concern is, OK, Vardy gets to the point where he retires at some point. And I know, you know, he's still bouncing around like a bunny rabbit, so I doubt it's going to be that soon. Um, but the rest of the team is very young, and every name that you've mentioned so far has attracted significant attention from clubs who would be considered traditionally to be bigger than Leicester, right? So my question is this, how many of those players who all appear to be crucial to the system um, need to leave before that sort of, you know, uh, pyramid of cards um, falls down? You know, if you take Wilfred and Didi out of that, have you got a big problem? Can, is he replaceable? If you take Madison or Tielemans out, are they replaceable? And again, if if and when Vardy either you know is struck down by a long term injury or if he you know his pace isn't quite what it was next season, um, I mean, I suppose I answer my own question by saying Vardy probably isn't really replaceable in because he's quite a unique player, right? But would that concern you if you were Brendan Rodgers? How long can I keep this squad together? That that always has to be a concern, yes, and and they certainly do have, they have players who are very very good, but they're also very good for Leicester's style. So it, it it does make it hard if you're if you're looking to find, you know, the next Wilfred Ndidi, for example. That is obviously a tricky ask, and and Ndidi has a a very plausible claim to be, you know, well if not the best defensive midfielder in the Premier League as a kind of screening midfielder, he's definitely in the top three there. So yeah, clearly they're going to want to hang on to people like Ndidi, Soyuncu, uh, Barnes, Madison. These are all very good players. Chilwell th- has been mentioned a lot too. Chilwell's been mentioned a lot. Pereira, I mean, you know, this, this is what happens when a, a squad is perceived to have overperformed. You know, people look at that and they go, "Okay, well, these players are all doing exceptionally well. They're very good players, and and these, you know, they are objectively good players outside of the Leicester system as well. They just happen to look particularly good given how Leicester are playing." Um, there is a perception, obviously, that Leicester are a, a smaller team, the Premier League win aside. You know, so if you're a Manchester City or a Manchester United or an Arsenal or whatever, there's an expectation you can you can pick those guys off. Having said that, if I were a Leicester player at the moment, I would be looking at the opportunity of competing in in Champions League football, of being in a position to be regularly in the title hunt. That, to me, is a more attractive prospect at Leicester City than it would be at a a, a supposedly bigger club that actually isn't doing that well. And I I think there's maybe an analogue slightly with... um, with some, maybe some of of Spurs players, you know, Spurs. Yes, they they, you know, they're, they're generally around the top six, aren't they? But they're aside from getting to the Champions League final in that that season where they were very much in the hunt for the Premier League title and, until right towards the end. It's arguable that some of those players were regularly linked with with other bigger teams, and that maybe they felt that there was a better chance of of silverware away from that club. But they stayed loyal to it. They stayed loyal to the project. I think having a, a manager who is able to achieve buy-in with that, as as Pochettino did at Spurs and as Rodgers is clearly doing at Leicester, is a significant impetus to stay. Also having a, a chief executive who repeatedly re-signs them to, uh, to deals every year. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> definitely. But but again, if, if you're Leicester, you know, Leicester do have 
um, a good uh, scouting department and, and, and were using quite advanced analytics well before Rodgers came in. Um, so they're good at finding, you know, younger players, players who, who have the opportunity to then shine, but they are also quite canny about signing players to longer term deals. Um, I would also look at, you know, you, you've, yes, Vardy obviously is, is an older experienced head, but you've, you've got Johnny Evans at the club as well, who is a very, very good, but also, uh, you know, a really experienced Premier League player and a proper dressing room leader, I, I would imagine. Premier League uh, title winner. Uh, right. Uh, and then you've also got Kasper Schmeichel. You know, so there, there, are, there are figureheads at that club who, A, seem to conduct themselves really, really well and are a genuinely good example to younger players. Um, and those players will, will probably be looking at that and thinking, you know, there's, there's, there's an atmosphere here at the club. There's a good manager who's got a clear blueprint, who's being backed by the board, there's good recruitment behind the scenes. Everything is heading in the right direction. So if I were, you know, there, there, there really aren't many clubs that I would genuinely consider leaving Leicester City for, probably only Manchester City and Liverpool at this point. Because, and that's that's not simply a reflection of the current standing of the league table, but I think that's... What, a, what if they're going to triple your wages? Well... That's the thing. I mean, I know know it it sounds a little bit tabloid, but that's what it always comes down to, Alex, right? I mean, it just seems to me to me like, what's Madison earning at Leicester? What what are Manchester United prepared to pay Madison to play for them? Well, I mean, this is one of, like, I don't know. Um, but But I do think that you, I mean, Manchester United are an interesting instance because, yes, you are obviously always going to have some players who will put pure cash in the bank ahead of other stuff and and that is absolutely their right because sports people have curtailed careers because of injury and age and and the window of opportunity is quite small so yeah you know go for it but if you want to look at the opportunity to win things and and a lot of the guys that we're talking about are they are early on in their careers right they're they're in their early 20s most of them so this is not something that is make or break for them at this moment in time. They could very reasonably have a good two or three years with Leicester and have those moves still available to them in all likelihood. It's really hard to know. I mean, how can you get into the head of a professional sportsman and and know what motivates them? You can't. But I, I would suggest that everything is set up at Leicester for a period of success, which probably won't involve winning the title simply because Liverpool and Manchester City are so strong at the moment, but absolutely could involve a good sustained run in the Champions League, potentially winning cup competitions in England. And, you know, if you're if you're 21, 22, 23, the opportunity to do that at a club that's brought you through, shown confidence in you, has a manager that you get on with, has good examples of professional players who have you know, had a sustained career in the game and achieved things. That's a that's a really, really good setup to have. I think Leicester feels like a club that people would want to be at in the same way that Liverpool does, for example. And I don't think you can say that for some of the alternative options that are out there for those players. I bet they're looking forward to winning the domestic English top league every year after the European Super League starts as well. <laughs> Don't you think? They're yeah. going to look forward to winning it by 50 points every year. I mean, you know, closely followed by Wolves or whatever. Yes, I, you know, it, that is one of the things that I guess is in, in the background. And, and obviously the, 
the football landscape is, is going to have changed dramatically post-COVID and a European Super League is potentially one of the things that is being talked about. And and it is weird because you, you look at someone like Leicester, yes, okay, they won the title in in fairly remarkable circumstances, you know, the like of which is very unlikely to be repeated. But they aren't considered in that kind of powerhouse group of clubs. And and it it, it begs a question of how does one then decide who would go into a European Super League? You know, obviously a club like Arsenal, for example, in terms of reputation, in terms of previous achievements, very much would deserve to be there. But in terms of who is currently very, very good, who is currently playing interesting and attractive football, which is obviously part of the consideration because the European Super League would be a, a commercial entity that would seek to attract a certain type of play, um, you know, Leicester would arguably have a stronger argument for being there than than Arsenal at the moment. So, who knows? Who knows, indeed. Okay, well, uh, thanks, Alex. Uh, we'll, uh, you'll be around for next week's podcast in full because it's about your club, Saints. Yes, indeed. Yes, I'm very excited. At last, we're getting some attention. Rob, uh, Brendan Rodgers is the Leicester City manager. Uh, and in the notes here, uh, Seb has said he's called it Brendan 2.0, <laughs> um, which is, is, you know, I mean, I guess what Seb considers a slightly reinvented version of the persona seen at Liverpool. Um, what were your expectations of, of, of Rodgers before he came in and, 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 and as he's come in? And uh, what's been the reality of, uh, of covering him on a, on a day-to-day basis with Brendan 2.0 in mind? Um <laughs> Well, obviously, we'd seen the um, the Liverpool documentary, so we weren't quite sure what we were <laughs> going to get, whether we were going to be handed some envelopes or what have you. But um, no, he, he, I knew that he had a great record in Scotland, and I knew that he did a very good job at Liverpool. They almost won the title until Gerard slipped. So we, yeah, we, had, and I remember his Swansea side playing against Leicester a few years back as well and seeing the style of football there. So I knew what sort of football he wanted to play. He wanted to play a fast, intense game, um, play out from the back. Very different to what we'd seen that that had led to Leicester City winning the title in 2016. I knew it was going to be a little bit of a a departure to that extent. But um, um, since he's come in, he's been an absolute pleasure to work with in terms of the media. He's... he's, um, very personable, he's a great communicator. I can see his man management is going to be top drawer as well. Um, the way he deals with players, from talking to players and talking to different people around the club, how he deals with them, how he, his open door policy, how he makes a point to speak to everybody and shake hands. I've seen him in the reception at the stadium on um, on press days. You know, anybody's just milling around, he'll go over and say hello to uh, just members of the public that have popped in for something. And if he's walking through, he'll, he'll say hello. and ask them if they enjoyed the last game and are they coming to the next game and stuff like that. So he, he is one of those sort of inspiring characters in many ways um, because when you hear him talk about what he wants to do, you you, you, you get the impression that um, the players will follow him. Um, and I think that was a big problem for Club well, that lack of communication. He wasn't able to do that and certainly not as well as Brendan. So I think Brendan coming in uh, is certainly has been a little bit reinvented in many ways because he, he's gone up to Scotland, had fantastic success. Feels like he's got unfinished business in, in the Premier League and picked Leicester City as the club to help fulfil that ambition. And, and also because of that little perception of him and that 
came about from that Liverpool documentary and, and that period then. He has sort of reined that sort of thing in. He still comes out with a few interesting sort of little philosophical sort of <laughs> slow sayings and and things like that, but not as many. And uh, but it's yeah, he's been really good for for the for the football club at the moment. He's been the, the right man at the right time so far because I think um, Claude Puel, uh, the, some of the work he did uh, has not been really appreciated by. Um, some of the Leicester supporters. I mean, I wrote a piece for The Athletic recently about Claude Time. I did an interview with him. And uh, it's very easy to forget that the side that's out there now playing so well under Brendan Rodgers, a lot of that side was put together by Claude, um, bringing some of those younger players in and promoting the likes of Chilwell, Harvey Barnes uh, from the um, from the under-23s into the side. I mean, it, it, He did face a tough task in terms of dealing with an ageing team of legends that won the title there had to there had to be um, an evolution of that squad uh, inevitably so what Claude did is he didn't do it in a particularly personal way in terms of um, Wes Morgan and Christian Fuchs and some of the older guys um, you know he, he didn't still make them feel uh, that they were valued at the football club as, as much as Brendan does and that's one of the first things that Brendan did he came in he got Wes Christian Casper, Jamie Vardy got them all on side, and um, and of course they're the leaders within the camp. So if they follow Brendan, the rest of the squad will follow them. So um, that's one of the things that um, Brendan's done particularly well, which Claude didn't do. But I think in terms of bringing that squad together, though, Claude did a lot of work initially, but he couldn't carry it on. I think it's worked out perfectly for City now that Brendan is the right man to come in, pick up from where Claude left off, and carry it on and take them just into a bit more of a a modern feel about the way they play now. It's so much more intensity. They're pressing high up the pitch. They work incredibly hard. Their fitness levels are, are up there. That was one of the first things they did. He identified they weren't fit enough to play the style of football he wanted to play. And um, But he's got them there now. And uh, I think certainly in the first half of the season, you, you, you saw the work that Brendan's been doing. Rob, uh, this is going to be a really difficult question for you to answer. Um, but I'm, I'm really sold on what Rodgers as Leicester are as a side. But... I mean, who do you think individually in that side has benefited most from his um, arrival? Because obviously one of one of Rogers' selling points is is how he relates to younger players and the way he communicates to the, with them and uh, how he's enabled players to grow. I mean, you think of Raheem Sterling in the past. Um, it's quite hard to to separate players like Madison and Barnes and T. Elements and actually Hamza Chaudhry, who um, I think is a really, really good player. Um and Wilfred Ndidi, who, who's the one player that's kind of made the biggest journey from A to B since he turned up? Well, the biggest change in a player is actually one of the oldest, well, one of the oldest is Jamie Vardy. I mean, the, yeah, the, 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 the team now is actually playing to his strengths, which was one of the big things that um, the fans uh, used to um, aim at uh, Claude Puel was that he wasn't, uh, he didn't have the team playing to Jamie's strengths. They like the ball uh, in behind the defence, they like quick action as well. Um, he is always looking for that through ball, but um, Brendan's made him the focal point of the side again, uh, which wasn't the case because Claude used to leave Jamie out for certain games and leave him out for cup games. And certainly when they got to the quarterfinals of the FA Cup and the League Cup, um, the fans felt there was a great opportunity there missed because of Claude not fielding his strongest team. Brendan's been totally different. Jamie's been pretty much... And ever present, and, and unless he's had a little niggle, and um, 
you've seen the goals he's been scoring. He was on one of those runs again earlier in the campaign. I mean, I don't. I, I, we all start to think, well, you can't do that again, can he? Scoring eleven consecutive games, but um, he was on a roll. Um, so he's probably benefited more than anybody, um, Jamie. But certainly the younger players have. I mean, you look at Charles Sunsu. I mean, he showed a lot of faith in Sunsu um, because of his losing Harry Maguire. We'll record fee, uh, eight million pounds to Manchester United. You think, well. What they're going to do here now, because you know you've just weakened your side to one of the rivals, one of the clubs that you're aspiring to challenge for Champions League spots. You know what are you going to do? And they did try and get James Tarkowski in, but they failed with a with a bid for him. Um, but then Brenda said, right, okay, I've seen I've seen enough of this soon, Sue lad. I'm going to give him a chance. Um, he's going to be my my partner for um, Johnny Evans, and he's put him in, and he's been outstanding. And we we saw him briefly under Claude and. He always had a mistake in him. He looked like a very rash, young defender. He's all, he, you got to understand sometimes you can't always win the ball, but he, he would try and win it every time and he'd give away free kicks or he'd get turned and get caught out of possession. And, uh, he was, um, yeah, he had always had a, an error in him, but he's cut that out under Brendan. He very rarely makes a mistake and he's been a, a, been a, a great signing for them so far. With, um, I mean, sorry, Siancho, I, I completely agree. Do you think he got, um, that's related to something else I was going to ask you, but do you think he got spooked around sort of November, December? Um, because there was something like, I remember him starting the first sort of three or four months of the season and he was absolutely brilliant. Um, actually surprisingly good on the ball as well, given given his build and his profile as a footballer. He looks like a kind of, um, well, he, he looks like a character from 2 for 2. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, he, he, oh, he wouldn't be doing that if he was playing under Nigel Pearson, that's for sure. But uh, he's, yeah, like, <laughs> he's a talent. He is a talent. But I think what we've got to understand as well about this young side is that with when you have young players, they're learning on the job. And this is his first full season in the Premier League. And, and it is a tough, tough division. And... I think sometimes the fans expect a little bit too much from some of the younger players. I mean, Ben Chilwell had it when he first got broke into the first team uh, under Claude, and he went for a spell where his form dipped. Uh, and they all say, oh, he's, no, he's rubbish, get Christian Fuchs back in. But you just got to stick with them, give them confidence, and um, they will have little dips in, in the season, the young lads, until they... But, but with every season, with more experience, they'll get stronger and they'll be more consistent. I mean, he's got, he's got a fantastic perfect almost role model next to him in Johnny Evans I mean Johnny Evans has been fantastic this season and um, I mean I picked him as my um, player of the year I know Jamie's been banging in all the goals at the one end but he's been absolute he's a Rolls Royce of a defender so if Sun Tzu's playing alongside him week in week out he'll learn he'll learn and uh, he'll get better as well but uh, inevitably I think young players will have little dips in form they might have a little loss of confidence at certain stages in the season and Leicester went through their little blip as well where the intensity of how they play seems to catch up with them they look physically tired in certain games and and if when your game is dependent on that intensity then um, that's going to be an issue but um, again physical strength comes with age as well with players that's why they peak when they're 28, 29, 30 so they, these guys have got plenty of time on their side Do you think this is kind of the missing ingredient so um, last Leicester game I covered was um, at the Etihad the, the, the 3-1 I remember thinking there's something slightly underwhelming about that group of players in certain situations um, and I might be being a bit spoiled and I might be doing them a terrible disservice by expecting them to mature earlier than they should reasonably do so Um but it's almost as if, you know, in certain games, they line up against sides who have vulnerabilities. I think, you know, Man United Old Trafford right at the beginning of the season would be another instance of that. Is this just a question of 
keeping this group together and waiting them for them to learn these lessons or does it actually need supplementing from the outside? Well, I think they're always constantly looking to strengthen the squad and the side and I, I know they were planning to do that this summer as well. Another centre-half probably would have been high on the agenda, perhaps another um, attacking player as well to add more goals to ease the reliance on Vardy. I think that's always a work in progress as any football squad is. But I also think that they've, they're trying to build this team to deliver sustained success over a number of seasons and there's still very early uh, early days for them. And then sometimes in these big games, though, they, they, it does come good for them. I mean, last season they beat Man City and Chelsea over Christmas in one really good period. Uh, it all seemed to fall away after that. But, um, you know, they can rise uh, to the occasion uh, against the, the, the big sides. But this is all about experience, I think. I mean, going up against a, a seasoned side like Manchester City in their own backyard, you know, that's that's daunting for, for young players. And um, I think sometimes there might be an element that um, they don't, that perhaps they don't believe in themselves enough uh, that they're good enough at that stage but um, I think that with time with experience another uh, season with Brendan I think you'll see some of these lads now really starting to step up I mean James Madison's going to become an England international he is that good he will play for England um, Ben Chilwell is now pretty much established as well was established as the England left back and so his confidence will be growing as he develops as well they've just got to stay focused on uh, on what they're trying to do with Leicester City and, and uh, listen to Brendan and, and they will develop and they will get better and they will start pushing teams like Man City on a more consistent basis. So this came up when I was speaking to, to Alex for the middle section of this podcast but I wanted to ask you as well Rob because you mentioned um, Madison and, and Chilwell there but we've you know Ndidi, uh, T. Elements and uh, Soyuncu we've already spoken about too, Vardy obviously and Evans all of these players have attracted uh, interest from other clubs. Um, I could probably take Vardy off that list now because I think the point at which he was going to leave for a, for a, a you know a club that would be considered traditionally bigger is probably past um, but all of those other players appear in uh, on the back pages with the transfer rumours and you can see why because it's a fantastic team and outside of the the top four um, which I you know <laughs> of course Leicester are currently in the top four but I mean the you know the clubs that are considered to be part of that top four top six outside of those squads there isn't a better squad than, than Leicester's it's, it's plain to see um, do you worry about uh, the team being able to keep that squad together? Have you? Do you worry that if Madison or Tielemans or, or Ndidi were to leave, that that might have a significant sort of shift in the balance of, of play, or that you know one or two players leaving might start a kind of exodus as we've seen at, at, at other clubs? Because I suppose it, it would be a bit of a, a worry, right? Um, no, not really, because I know inevitably they won't be able to keep all their players all the time. But if you look at Leicester City's policy over the years, since they won the title, they've um, reluctantly sold one of their key players every summer, but only one. Um, it started with Ingola Kante and then you know you had uh, Danny Drinkwater, Riyad Mahrez and Harry Maguire. They've all moved on now. Uh, but only one, and they've kept the rest together. Now, these young lads have got to look at the situation and say, right, OK, we're an up-and-coming team at Leicester. We're well looked after. We might not get the wages that they would get at other clubs, but um, you know, they're getting an opportunity to play, and they're playing in a good side. They're catching the eye. The fact that people are talking about them and linking them with Man United and Chelsea and Manchester City, is that because they're getting an opportunity to perform on the biggest stage? And if you look at the likes of Chilwell, he's becoming an England international boss playing for Leicester. James Madison's going to be 
an England international whilst playing for Leicester. So there are opportunities for them. Inevitably, yes. I'm sure if there was big offers coming in for them from um, from the likes of Man United and Man City, then it'd be very hard for for them not to have their head turned by by that. But on the other, the flip side of that is you know they're they're playing with their mates, playing good football, and playing lots of football. The regular starters. So it's whether they you know. They want to continue down that road, or when they they feel the time is right for them to, to move on. But in terms of Leicester City selling players, I mean, if, as you saw with the Harry Maguire situation, they weren't going to sell him for anything less than a world record. So it, it, it also tests the, the 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 metal of the club that's trying to buy one of their players. And uh, a lot of the signs of Eddie. I mean, look at the, the stance with Riyad Mahrez. He got he eventually got his move, but it was two windows before he eventually got his move. And um, you know they stood firm in the in January when uh, Man City came in with an offer which they didn't see uh, as acceptable, and they turned it down on um, transfer deadline day or the day before transfer deadline day, and that sparked his absence from the club for two ten days and missed two games. But um, they still stood firm on it because the message is we're here, we're aspiring to be a side, a club that can compete with the the best in English football, and. What sort of message would that be if they did, for example, like Southampton did and sold off all their best players? Um, you know, you, you, uh, the, you just see what's happened at Southampton when we went down there. It was 9-0 drubbing. Um, so I don't. I think they've learned a lesson from that in terms of, you know, the message they want to send out in, in, in terms of their aspiration to be considered one of the best clubs in the in the Premier League. And risking like player fallouts like the Mara situation presumably is, is a is a sort of risk worth taking in that scenario, right? Because it's not just about well, yeah, that but, incidence, it's about every other possible incidence. Well yeah, but also it sends our message to the rest of the, the, the players there, isn't it? That, you know, you you're happy to sign big contracts. And that's what they do do with the younger players. They try and keep them on a long contract. So um Madison's in contract negotiations now over an improved contract. Um, Chilwell signed a long-term contract. All these lads are, are signed up for a long time, so there's a bit of security there for the club, but also security there for, for the players as, as well. Um, so, yes, in terms of players being upset, I don't. They, there's a group of players, the senior players down there, that police that as well. They're... Um, They've got a, a, a little bit of an element of being um, independent to some extent in there and how they deal with um, any sort of disruption within the camp. It's basically not allowed. I mean, fair play to Riyad because when he came back from that, he did play quite well for the rest of the season for Leicester City. He did get his head back on, on, on his career and I don't think people could complain too much about his performances after that. And, I don't, and although Leicester did go on a little blip after that... Um, which ultimately led to Claude's departure around February time. Um, it did cast a little bit of a cloud of it, but um, they they worked. They, I think the long term gain um, was more important than the short term pain in what in terms of what they were going to have to deal with internally. Yeah. Okay. Hey. Well, listen. I think we're going to leave it there. But uh, Rob, thanks ever so much for for coming. We really appreciate that. That's great. No problem. Thank you. Um, and we will be back next week uh, with uh, something else can't remember what but something's happening uh, as I'm it doing does doing Southampton next week. week there you go you spoil my jokes yeah, I always know what it is I just pretend that I don't no I'm just ruining your punchlines yeah week by week yeah <laughs> okay okay okay